For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup sea foam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on sea foam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to SteelDealers.com. Now... Here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. A 12-year-old angler in Florida is now the proud owner of two new world fishing records after he hauled in a 58-pound, 8-ounce Jack Creval from a dock across the street from his house. Before you assume the kid had the help of an uncle or a father, think again. Nicholas Fano hauled in this monster all by himself with a rod and line far too small for that class of fish. One warm Saturday last October, he and a buddy decided to throw in a line on the Bessie Creek in Palm City, Florida. Bessie Creek is only about 100 feet wide and flows into the St. Lucie River on the Atlantic coast. He and his friend caught a few small mullet, hooked them into some circle hooks, and threw out the bait on some 30-pound test braid. When the record-breaking fish grabbed the line, Fano knew he wouldn't be able to overpower it with the tackle he was using. So he spent 40 minutes tiring out the huge fish before landing it. The whole time, he never let go of the rod. Here's a quote from uh, Treasure Coast Newspapers. I knew I couldn't get anybody to help me handle the rod or else it wouldn't count as my fish. That's very astute, Nick. I'll do it myself. Once they took a few pictures and weighed the fish, they let it go. The International Game Fish Association confirmed the catch and awarded Fano with two world records. The junior world record and the men's 50-pound test line world record, Jack Creval. That's right. Men's world record. You heard it here first, folks. Young Mr. Fano has become a man. Today, you have become a man. Oh, man. Yes, I am. 
Those records likely won't be beaten anytime soon. The previous international record of 58 pounds, 6 ounces has stood for 22 years, and the Florida State record of 57 pounds has stood since 1993. The Jack Creval can be found both inshore and in open water. They're commonly 3 to 5 pounds, and the largest are usually closer to 20 pounds. If anybody has ever fished for jacks or caught any jack species, you know that they have an incredible amount of fight, and more often than not, the fish that you bring into the boat is undersized for the fish that was in your mind during the fight. Fano's fish was more than twice the size of your average Jack Creval. Congratulations, Mr. Fano. We can't wait to see what happens now that you're a uh, full-grown fishing dude. This week, as per usual, we've got a bunch of awesome stuff. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And it's a little special because I have a guest, a guy named Fritz, which is half or 50% of the TikTok sensation Old Time Hockey, which features only Fritz and Donnybrook. We have been fishing a world-renowned Yellow Perch Lake, Lake Cascade in central Idaho. This 30,000-plus acre body of water averages less than 40 feet deep, produces a ton of food, and most importantly to anglers, has also produced two world-record yellow perch and at least three, maybe five, state-record yellow perch. Outside of that, and something I just learned this week, by fishing not only with Fritz, but also with Jordan Messner and Mike Thomas of Idaho Fish and Game, Mike is the regional fisheries biologist, and Jordan is the Southwest Regional Fisheries Manager. Perch in Lake Cascade are actually setting records of their own by themselves just by getting old. Extremely old. 14 years. Verified. 14-year-old yellow perch. Which is insane. And we may see some go beyond that. Anyway, Fritz, I need you to do one thing. What is TikTok? TikTok. Well, <laughs> what TikTok is and what I do on TikTok might be two different things, but TikTok is uh, pretty much just a dance app, I believe. It started as Musical.ly. I think it got bought out, um, switched to TikTok. It's a short format video app. Um, you can do anywhere from one second to three minutes. So I and, got involved in it about two years ago. And what do you do? So I do mostly... Um, kind of my own little form of ASMR, um, which is kind of like a calming technique in my videos. I didn't start out that way, kind of grew into it, but uh, my videos range from mostly anywhere 30 seconds to probably about three minutes. So pretty much to the max. So the, the TikTok platform, if you're familiar with like an Instagram or maybe even like a Facebook or something like that, uh, it's it's another social media platform where Anybody who downloads the app can upload content, and you got into this how? So I got into this uh, just <laughs> kind of on a whim, but basically right after COVID, I was playing in a hockey league out of Sioux, Canada, which is in Ontario, um, just north of the Michigan border where I live, about 35 minutes. And that league got canceled when COVID happened. Um, but our group text about like the game and what time it started and kind of who's getting there at what time, you know? Um, that kind of kept going. And so when we weren't playing hockey, it would just end up being a lot of hockey videos getting sent. So basically it's like a link, right? You click on the link, it takes you to the app. 
so like I'm in the app watching the videos and I just always enjoyed them. I found myself sending them to like other people, like copy and pasting the link, um, sending it to like other hockey buddies and stuff. And then after a period of time, I decided to make one. It was, I think it was April 22nd, 2020. Um, it was a hockey video, um, kind of connected with the hockey audience first and then kind of just started from there and just kind of grew organically, you know, just kind of just showed a little bit into my life and what we do in the Cedar Swamp where I live with my dog, Donnie Brook, and people really enjoyed it. So I kind of just kept to it. And part of TikTok is like people will leave comments so they could have a comment like, where are you from? Or, uh, I love your dog. What's your dog's name? So then you respond to that uh, comment in a video. So a lot of it was just driven by like what people were asking. And and your dog is Donnybrook, which yes. would be the other half. Yeah, that's uh, Michael Jordan. I'm Scotty Pippen. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when you say like like people liked it, right? You you literally went from zero to what? Where are you at now? Um, I think on TikTok we're at about 4.8 million 4.8 million yeah. yeah pretty wild eh? million <laughs> million yeah. right yep. and and so what what are people engaging with like what are you doing on there you know i think a for a while it took me um kind of asking the same question to see what it was was special about it um so i'm not saying i got it nailed down but if i were to guess i would say it's a place where people can put their heart forward I know it sounds a little weird, but it's a place where you can kind of just be yourself. You know, if you like something that's a little out there, the world's big enough already. And you're able now to put videos online and connect with people. And never in a million years did I think people would be interested in the things I'm interested in or stuff like that. So I really don't have it nailed down. <laughs> I don't know why people think it is so special, but it means a lot. Um, it means a lot that people want to come on the adventures and want to see the videos. So I just kind of try to keep it going. And... If you can remember way back when, you know, it was sometime during this, this COVID era, but I, I did mention here on the Cal's Week in Review podcast during the My Week section that, you know, I kind of like stumbled on the algorithm served up or somebody gave me a link to old timey hockey on, on Instagram. And boy, I, you know, I hope this isn't offensive, but I found it like wholesome and just like warm inviting uh a oh, bunch of other words here would be like inclusive well i'm trying really hard not to get insulted <laughs> right it's like it's like i appreciate that but man it's like this day and age it's like you're not insulting people on there you're not being controversial you aren't chasing that next thing i guess you know it's literally like a warm campfire sometimes and and you're like inviting people to come sit next to a warm campfire inviting people to have a meal inviting people to sit down and play like a really old video game okay so there's like some nostalgia stuff in there uh you got a super cute dog that's just like your buddy on there donnie brook that goes along with you and yeah that's the reason that i connected with it is it is outdoors and is just like it's a welcoming thing and uh that's how you and i started talking right I, like i reached out and i said uh just appreciate the positive content you know keep it up right and uh you have which is awesome 
and and you know obviously it, uh, I'm a fan, still a fan. So uh, and you got to come down here to Idaho, or you made the choice to come down here to Idaho to a lake that I have never fished, and have always wanted to fish, and just kind of had a hunch that you uh, because of the content that you put out that. Uh, you'd be somebody worth fishing with. And then you've turned out to be that person. That's a spoiler alert for everybody. If you uh, follow old-timey hockey, this is somebody that you can sit down, have a cold pop with, and, you know, do some angling for yellow perch. So, your impression of Lake Cascade, Idaho. Holy wow. Where do I start? Well, start with the world-class perch. Um, Biggest, I mean... Some of the biggest in the world, you know, let alone where I'm from. Um, where I'm from, you know, a perch that you'd keep, maybe get mounted, is one you'd probably toss back here. So, and and so you are you're thirty some minutes from hockey league in Canada. Yep. But you live in Michigan, which makes you a youper, yep. right? You're in mm-hmm. the upper PA, the upper upper peninsula. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of water up there. A lot of water. And yep. that's like pan fishing country. And the perch kind of by size falls into like a pan fish category. It's not like as uh, vertically oriented. Exactly. As yep. a bluegill or a sunfish, but you've probably caught a lot of perch. Yeah. Um, you'll find them competing a lot because they are the same size as the panfish. So, you know, you'll find them in school sometimes with gills, uh, sunfish, um, pumpkin seed. You know, and the perch kind of suspend a little bit lower where I'm from. So it's really hard to get through those gills, you know, to get to the perch. So here it's nice. You see that mark, right? You know, it's either one of two things pretty much or one of three, I guess. It could be a rainbow trout, right? But so that was really cool coming out here and not having to kind of, because we do love fishing for perch. It isn't that. It's just they tend to be a little bit finicky. Um, I was fishing for them three days before I came here and uh, we ended up just switching. And went to bluegill. <laughs> right, you're like, this thing's biting. Yeah, yeah, just been, you know, one of those years. Just look, bites seems like it's starting late. And we, we had a, a interesting morning today, right? Yeah. Like, it's like, drilled some holes. So we uh, got on some sleds, ripped out on the lake. For me, it's ripping out on the lake. It's like a, a conservative 25 miles an hour. And uh, we drilled some holes. Started picking up fish on our Vexlar, like hummingbird fish finders, right? And we're not getting any bites. Like you knew the fish were down there. You're picking them up on the electronics, but you just couldn't get one to eat something. Yeah, a little frustrating sometimes, eh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but marking them's always fun. But when you know it's a fish, you know your bait's right there. You know, the fish is doing its job. You know, the bait's probably doing its, its job. It, it yeah, makes the, you the mark, the fish is following your bait up and down the column. Yep. Yeah, fire in the hole. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it's not connecting with it. Yep. Yeah, it was making me a little self-conscious, but I just tried to switch up my cadence. Um, you know, keep slamming it on that bottom, mix it up a little bit like we were doing, pull it up, jig a little bit, and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so prior to coming here... What was your biggest yellow perch? Biggest yellow perch was about uh, almost 12 inches. So 11 and three fourths. So. And then, uh, out here on the, on the ice, the first day you, uh, you broke. Yep. Right. You broke. Oh yeah. Yeah, 13 and a half first day. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
And then you got one today that was 13 and three, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I told him if we could live well this and I could take it back home, I'd be a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah. And, and I am so far behind the curve in the world of perch fishing. It's, it's like an adult onset thing for me. Like, it, you know, in Montana, it's just not, not a species that people from Montana, like really, you know, it was like your neighbor who moved to Montana from Minnesota or Michigan or someplace, they fished for perch. And you were always like, it was maybe if you're throwing like spinners off the dock at uh, Flathead Lake or something like that, you'd pick up a perch. But um, mostly a lot of trolling too, where I'm from. Oh, really? Yeah. With just a little spinner. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously open water, right? (laughs) Yeah. But yeah. Uh, Just the variety of species as you, as you move in towards the interior, right? Like the, the high mountains, the higher altitudes just don't, we don't support as much life. The old timey hockey channel. I look at that, man. Like you're, you're hitting so many touch points of the outdoors, right? Like there's fire, there's cooking outside, there's fishing, certainly some hockey, at least some hockey references, right? right? (laughs) Impossible. Uh, (laughs) And uh, canoeing. Yep. Seen canoeing on there. Seen snowshoeing. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely. What What were like your outdoor influences? Um, growing up was just my family. You know, I was lucky enough to grow up around a lot of it. Lucky enough to grow up in a region where a lot of it's pretty common. I, I would say probably my biggest influence was my grandfather. Because that's kind of who instilled, you know, the ethics in my father that he passed down to me. Taught me how to hunt taught me how to do it ethically and, you know, just to respect the animal and, you know, do it right, do things right. Um, there's a right way to put meat on the table. And he taught me that. And, uh, I would say if that I could nail down a person that was the biggest influence, it would probably be my grandfather. Deer hunting was probably my entrance into the wild per se, just that I grew up around mostly. Um, like you were talking about perch fish. I didn't necessarily grow up perch fishing. Um, we just call it pan fishing where I'm from. You hope to get a perch. <laughs> but uh, I'd say deer hunting was pretty much probably my biggest influence that got me into the outdoors, um, got me into the science of it kind of per se. And, you know, years of work makes up for that one moment when you get a buck that came in, you know, that first time. So I think that kind of instilled in me, like, this has a payoff, you know, it's not just about like going out, getting an animal, or it's not about like, you know, just going out and trying to film things and stuff like that. It's about, you know, building up a relationship with nature. And I've been fortunate enough that I grew up around it. Um, so I think that's a little bit, I guess, what I'm trying to pass on, you know, what I'm trying to show people that there is outlets like nature out there and a lot of things you can do in it, right? Absolutely. If you really wanted to like get a message out in regards to like, you know, it's obvious that that you've had an outdoor education, right? And you've had a lot of influence in the outdoors. You, I mean, this is your your job now, right? This is yeah. what your your full-time living is, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of an immersive outdoor experience. Um, Thank you. <laughs> in far fewer words than than I do things, it's uh, it's working. It's great. Thank you. So like if, you, if you wanted to take that and uh, relay that to somebody, uh, do you have any, like, takeaways? Like, if you say, like, hey, if you could look at all my stuff, 
and and you needed me to suggest something, I would prefer you take this out of it. I guess I would just tell everybody I'm not an expert, you know? I'm an apprentice. <laughs> I'm an outdoor apprentice. I'm still willing to learn. I don't know everything by any means. So I, I guess if people could take one thing from it, it would be um, don't be intimidated by it. Get out there. Get your feet wet. Um, start learning things. Don't think you ever know everything, which I was fortunate enough. My Once I turned about 30, late 20s, started being a little bit more receptive to people trying to teach me things. <laughs> so, Funny how that happens. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess that would be it. You know, nature's been a big part of my life, but um, I still think I'm early on my journey. And I just hope people start theirs too. That's great. So out here in Idaho, we're, we're, we're missing your second half, the Donnie Brook of the yeah. old-timey hockey. We uh, have uh, Snort here, uh, the, the the Snort Report, and uh, I just got to tell you, like, one of the cutest things of the week is initially, uh, we you know, we were all riding not tandem, but I guess triple counting the dog on a uh, snowmobile I borrowed from Stephen Ranella. And, uh, at the very beginning of the week, Snort very intimidated by jumping up on the sled with Fritz here. And today was just automatic. Like basically Fritz opens his arms and Snort jumps into them. Hopefully we captured some of that on camera. We're going to get this out on uh, a future Field Report, Cal's Week in Review, Field Report, that old YouTube series will fire back up and show you some good uh, outdoor adventures. Thank you very much, Fritz, man. It's been great. Thank you. Hopefully we can plan something else, right? Yeah, thank you, though, from the bottom of my heart. This is a trip of a lifetime. Coming out here, crew was great. It was amazing. I just thank you. Oh, yeah, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's it's such a goofy deal. For me, I mean, like, I'm 39. I got a couple years on you. Uh, like, chatting with folks over the internet sometimes, right? It's like reaching out and be like, hey, I see you're doing some stuff. It's very cool. Uh, let's go fishing sometime, right? And then connect and do it is, like, the magic of connectivity these days. Totally. But you kind of never know what you're going to get. So I'll just say on the record, like, old-timey hockey, Fritz, is a good guy to go fishing with. Thank you. So is Cal. <laughs> Thank you. So before we go, where do folks find you? What do you got? What else you got going on? What's the next thing? Uh, we'll see on the next thing. <laughs> Just day at a time right now. But uh, right now you can find me on TikTok at Old Time Hockey. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube. Find me at Red Wings Youper 717 at AOL.com. <laughs> Drop me an email. I'm always available. Send me a message. Do we have to spell old time hockey? Because you spell it a little funky, right? Yeah, good call. Should have done that, eh? It's uh, old time, O-L-D-T-I-M-E, and then I spelled hockey, H-A-W-K-E-Y. No real reason. The other name was taken. (laughs) For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it, and don't try it without on X. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, 
But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. You've heard that name before because I've talked about them here on this podcast. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. Now, it's wild axis deer, which is an invasive species, but this operation is monitored and observed by the USDA, and they can commercially sell axis deer. Last time I went out to uh, Maui to hunt axis, I did not kill one, which is where Maui Nui Venison would come in very handy for folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful and still want to have something in the freezer or uh, handy in the form of a snack stick that is as close to getting your own as you can get, which is what Maui Nui Venison is. You can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. A lot of news over at the old people desk. And no, we're not talking about a reboot of the TV series The Golden Girls. Betty White, rest in peace. If you can keep the heat low enough, you can brown both sides of the omelet without burning it. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. And if you ever want any more advice, I'm always here. (laughs) You too. Thank you, Mr. President. First up, scientists have found the first documented case of disease transmission from animal to human, which likely took place while that early human was butchering game. A team of Swiss scientists made the discovery recently while re-examining the first fully intact Neanderthal skeleton ever found. We've known for a long time that this Neanderthal lived about age 60 and suffered from arthritis that had deformed his joints very severely. This guy could have used Madville. But this new analysis showed that all of the joint damage couldn't have been caused only by arthritis. The authors write that the skeleton shows, quote, erosions at multiple non-contiguous vertebrae and reactive bone formation extending far beyond the left hip joint, which suggests that additional diagnosis of brucellosis. That's right, brucellosis. That disease that prevents ranchers from loving bison. And that disease that means that our Neanderthal could have used much more than Advil, like an epidural from the neck down. We have covered brucellosis a whole bunch on the show, but as a refresher, brucellosis is a bacterial infection most commonly found in hooved mammals and transmitted mainly through contact with infected afterbirth. Its most publicized effect is causing pregnant cows to miscarry. 
You'll remember that a huge controversy around bison reintroduction is the worry that the bison could possibly spread brucellosis to cattle. But brucella bacteria also infects all kinds of tissue, from bone and muscle to liver and kidneys, and it causes severe fever as well as joint and muscle pain. There have been many modern cases of humans contracting brucellosis from all kinds of infected animal tissue, and hunters can be particularly susceptible. Pack those latex gloves and wash your knives if you're hunting game that might be infected. You do not want to end up like our Neanderthal friend. Because there were no domestic cattle back in Neanderthal times, the disease was almost definitely picked up while processing deer or auroch or eating raw meat. No latex gloves or pellet grills available back then. Brucellosis is just one of the animal diseases that have transferred to humans along with AIDS and COVID. And maybe, if we give it enough time, CWD could make that jump too, either to humans or cattle, or both. Oh my god, I can't wait! Quick aside, in the history of anthropology, as we mentioned earlier, the specimen known as the Old Man of La Chapelle was the first fully intact Neanderthal skeleton ever found, way back in 1908. When he first turned up, researchers didn't realize he had such severe bone disease, and his deformed skeleton shape was interpreted as how all Neanderthals were built. That means, due to this one individual's arthritis and brucellosis, the image of the stooped-over, head-jutting-out caveman took hold, and all those drawings you see showing monkeys turning into humans by standing up straighter and straighter were based on bad marketing. And speaking of painful images, the best-preserved cave painting of a human being gathering honey from a bee's nest was recently discovered in the Barranco Gomez Rock Shelter in northeast Spain. The amazingly clear picture is 7,500 years old and shows a person scaling a rope ladder anchored at the top of a cliff and secured to the rock halfway up by a pole. You can make out individual bees buzzing around the hive and the figure's head tilted back to get a better view. An even older depiction of honey gathering is the 8,000-year-old Man of Bicor from the Cueva de la Arena or Cave of Spiders in the same region of Iberia, which was discovered in 1921 and shows the same method of scaling a ladder to collect honey. All you mountain goat hunters out there may think you're pretty intrepid with crampons and ice axes, but dangling from woven vines swatting away stinging bees to get some honeycombs, that is some good mountain climbing and food getting right there. When you think about prehistoric people, you typically hear about the transition from hunting and gathering to agriculture around 10 to 12,000 years ago. So these paintings from 8,000 years ago were made during the transition, and it may not be a coincidence that collecting honey was an important subject for these paintings, as beekeeping was one of the earliest forms of animal husbandry that people ever engaged in. The ancient Egyptians carved some very detailed hieroglyphics of bees and beekeeping from around 4,000 years ago. Interestingly, domestication of bees is still incomplete, and in every colony of human-controlled honeybees, there is an extensive mating with wild bees. In fact, some biologists consider beekeeping to be more of managing wild hives versus possessing a hive as most colonies are able to survive and migrate to other nests if humans stop tending to them. Here's a couple of quick honeybee facts for you. Drones routinely fill their stomachs with flower nectar weighing as much as half their body weight and still retain the ability to fly. Their digestive enzymes start breaking down the structure of the nectar, and once they get back to the nest, they regurgitate their hull. 
that half-digested nectar is eaten and re-regurgitated by hive bees, who then beat their wings over it, keeping it at a constant 95 degrees until all the water evaporates and you end up with honey. So the next time you're sweetening up your yogurt or cup of tea, just remember that's twice evaporated bee barf that you're eating. Moving on to the last stop on our prehistoric history roundup. More evidence has emerged solidifying just how long ago humans were hunting their own game, not just scavenging leftovers from the kills of other animals. A team of scientists from the University of San Diego recently analyzed the human-made cut marks on two million-year-old gazelle and wildebeest bones excavated near Lake Victoria in what is now Kenya. Existing research has shown that when lions or other predators get first dibs on prey animals, they concentrate their bites on so-called hot zones, placed on the ends of the bones where muscles and tendons connect. If humans come along afterwards as scavengers, they don't leave any cut marks in those areas because the meat there is already missing. In these Lake Victoria bones, however, the hot zones showed cut marks from human tools, not from predator teeth, leading the scientists to conclude that humans had almost certainly killed the animals themselves and been the first to eat them. Many anthropologists had supposed that any meat humans were eating around this time was pilfered while skulking around the kill sites of other better-equipped predators. Meaning that you can now suppose from this kill site that hunting, procuring your own meat, not stealing it from others, goes back further in our makeup than we thought. Interestingly, we don't know exactly what kind of early human was doing this hunting. At two million years ago, it was likely our ancestor Homo habilis, aka the tool-using man. That name would fit with all the stone-cutting tools found at this site, but there were no human bones found. You know, don't die where you're having dinner. There is some possibility that the hunters in question here were actually Paranthropus, a type of hominid who lived in the same area at the same time as Homo habilis and whose Latin name means, essentially, alongside human beings. The back teeth of Paranthropus are flattened in a way that suggests a fully vegetarian diet, but who knows if they were in some transition stage of development when this hunt went down two million years ago. Maybe getting calories from kills like this one spurred an entirely new direction for the species. How's that for a two-million-year-old cliffhanger? The suspense is terrible. He, he's going to go this time. I hope it'll last. And last but not least, the grizzly bear desk. The governors of Montana and Wyoming both submitted petitions recently to delist grizzly bears as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. Montana Governor Greg Gianforte argued that the grizzly bear population in the northern continental divide ecosystem is ready to survive under state management. Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon says the same about the grizzlies in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Both governors claim that the existential threats to the grizzly populations in these ecosystems have passed thanks to the hard work of state and federal officials and conservation groups. Grizzly populations in these two areas have grown from less than 200 individuals in 1975 to about 1,700 bears today. These two areas hold the vast majority of the grizzlies in the lower 48. Grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem are fully recovered, and their management is now best entrusted to the experienced and capable institutions of the states. Governor Gordon from Wyoming. One of the central questions in this debate is whether the populations in these two recovery areas can be seen as distinct. 
Part of the reason previous attempts to delist grizzly bears have failed is because the states weren't able to explain how delisting one group of bears might affect bears in the other ecosystems. There are six grizzly bear ecosystems in the lower 48, the populations in the GYE, or Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, and NCDE, Northern Continental Divide Ecosystem, are doing well, which is why these governors want to delist the bears in these portions of Montana and Wyoming, but the populations in two of the other ecosystems are very low, and there are no grizzlies in the Bitterroot and Northern Cascade regions, uh, you know, making new grizzly bears. The latest five-year status review of the species, published in March of last year by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, concluded that the populations in these two ecosystems have high resiliency, and the agency categorized the risk of extinction for the entire lower 48 population as low, which is great. But the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service still recommended that the grizzly continue to be listed as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. If their risk of extinction is low, why can't they be delisted? Because in scenarios where conservation efforts decrease and private land development increases, the populations in the GYE and NCDE could suffer significantly. Even with a slight decrease in conservation efforts, the populations in the Selkirk and Cabinet Yak ecosystems could be eliminated. In other words, the agency didn't do what the Wyoming and Montana governors want them to do, which is consider the bears in the different ecosystems as distinct. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service didn't recommend delisting one group of bears while retaining protections on another group of bears. They considered the entire lower 48 a single population, and they determined that the bear status should remain the same. If you're saying, well, that doesn't really make sense, the argument here is considering each of these a single population is not a long-term plan for genetic diversity. Remember way back when we talked about the mountain lions in the Santa Monica Mountains, we talked about island ecosystems, right? So the fear is that bears in the GYE will do great for a long time. However, without new genes coming in from, let's say, the NCDE or the Northern Cascades, or some glacier-hugging bear way up in Alberta, that population in the GYE, because it's isolated, will eventually deteriorate. So the folks that are saying, wait, 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 and hang on, let's not delist yet, they're thinking about this long-term genetic viability of a population. It wasn't that long ago that the grizzly was fully endangered. There were very few. And now there's actually more threats to the grizzly bear in a place like the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem where with this massive flood of folks into Montana, a lot of grizzly bear habitat and range is getting broken up for cabins again. These bears need a lot of room to roam. I want to hunt them. I want to eat them, just like a lot of folks I know. But I also want them to be around for a long time. It's a tricky situation. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has 90 days to respond to each petition, which means they'll need to respond to Gianforte by March 17 and to Gordon by April 4. As always, we'll update you with any developments. Thank you so much for listening. That's all I've got for you this week. Remember, even though we're in the depths of winter, spring is coming, which means you're going to have a lot of trees falling on your property. If that sounds like you, get your butt down to a local friendly steel dealer. Don't know where that is? Check out www.steeldealers.com and find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. 
They're going to get you set up with what you need and not send you home with what you don't. And most importantly, write in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's AskCal at TheMeatEater.com. And let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access to your populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.